We're about investing in opportunities that are overlooked. And uh, women in diverse talent is, has been historically overlooked. We're not following the herd, right? We are identifying opportunities. We back teams, individuals with experience and the track record. There are those individuals who are women, people of color like myself, who've been doing this for a long time. But we have that network to be able to tap into those opportunities, anchor those managers and provide them that first kind of capital so that they can start their own platforms. So it's a tremendous opportunity from the manager side. But we're also backing women and diverse talent at you know companies as well. We're at the C-level where they don't have access to capital in the way that you see um, in more traditional firms. So those are other opportunities, not only in the managers that we back, but also in the types of companies that we're backing as well. That was Mina Pacheco-Nazemi, and this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and today we're talking about opportunities in private equity. My guest today is Mina Pacheco-Nazemi. Mina heads up the Diversified Alternative Equity Group here at Barings. This is a team that invests on behalf of Barings clients in private equity and real asset funds, co-investments, and direct private company investments. Prior to joining Barings in 2017, Mina held a number of leadership positions in the private equity industry, including most recently serving as co-founder and partner at Aldea Capital Partners. She is also heavily involved in promoting women's and diversity initiatives across the industry and has served in leadership positions with a number of prominent organizations in that space. In this conversation, Mina and I discuss the macro backdrop for private equity today and some of the structural trends out there that are really shifting the current landscape. We talk about why Mina and team are seeing opportunities in the emerging managers segment of the market and why this space may be poised to weather some tougher economic times should we see them. Finally, we talk about the biggest challenges that limited partners face today when constructing private equity allocations and how and why Mina and team are so focused on assessing factors like a private equity manager's depth of experience, the diversity of their team, and also how incentive structures are constructed. With that, please enjoy this conversation with Mina Pacheco-Nazemi. All right, Mina, welcome back to the Streaming Income Podcast. Thank you, Greg, for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I'm excited to speak with you today, talk about private equity and catch up on some of the trends that are going on um, in the market. So I was thinking maybe we could just start by asking you to kind of set the scene for our listeners a little bit. Um, Tell us kind of some of the trends that you're seeing um, in today's market. I know it's one that's maybe gotten a little more challenging for uh, LPs, but what are some of those big trends that are kind of setting that PE landscape today? Absolutely. So uh, what I would start with is the fact that there are so many funds in the market today. Um, A lot of managers are coming back to market, they're coming back to market faster, and they're coming back to market with much bigger funds. So what that means for a lot of investors is that they're being inundated with a number of re-ups, and uh, they're challenged. They're challenged with the the re-up schedule, but they're Mm -hmm. also challenged to evaluate new opportunities 
So the combination of that and then the volatile markets mm. where you're finding that the markets are up one day, down one day, you'll, you're seeing the denominator effect is really impacting them and how much they can put to work in a given year, like in 2022, mm -hmm. their pacing schedule. And there's just a lot of challenges for, for a lot of LPs who are just overall under-resourced in this environment. Yeah, yeah, that sounds tricky. Um, I've also heard you speak before a little bit about, you know, some of the managers potentially moving out of their area of expertise in this environment. Are you seeing a lot of that going on at the moment? Well, absolutely. We're, we're finding that a lot of managers are, are growing and raising more assets. But what that means is that they're expanding their opportunity set. So mm. where they had their demonstrated success in their previous funds, now they're departing from that, maybe investing in other sectors, other parts of the market, or in, in assets that are bigger than where they've historically invested in. So mm. as they're talking to and they're working um, and speaking to investors like ourselves, they are trying to convince us that they can put the money to work in the same successful way that they had um, with this more and this larger expanded opportunity set. Hmm, hmm. Okay, I want to dive more into that in a minute, but um, one question I had for you as well is just thinking about GPs and their commitments to their own funds. What is that kind of looking like yeah. at the moment? Yeah, it's the market standard is the 2%, but what's in my mind always fascinating is you have managers who've had demonstrated success, have generated a lot of wealth, but then as they're raising subsequent funds and obviously generating higher fees, they're still maintaining that 2% GP commitment. So mm -hmm. the alignment isn't necessarily growing, even though their their business and their platforms are growing, their their management fees are, are growing as well. And it's a thematic area that we spend a lot of time on, especially in a market where we're investing in today with so much volatility. We're seeing the market volatility in the public markets. We're seeing inflation. Mm -hmm. We're seeing the war in Ukraine. We're seeing the, the changes on the interest rate side. And so we like to invest with managers where there is that higher alignment. And, um, and so when we see that there is maybe uh, less alignment or we see that maybe those managers, despite their their wealth aren't investing more capital, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it raises a red flag that for us. That makes sense. Yeah. You want to see the skin in the game. We want to see the skin in the game. Yeah. And 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 it's important, right? Because they're coming to us and telling us about, hey, these are great market opportunities and great investments. And so we want them to be just Put as aligned. Yeah, 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 exactly. Be aligned alongside with us as the, on the investor side. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you mentioned the, the macro environment. So obviously there's a lot going on there. As you mentioned, we've seen some extreme volatility in public markets this year, rising rates, lots of concerns around inflation, um, a lot of things to worry about essentially. So curious as you look at the you know broader private equity universe, um, how you think those factors are kind of impacting the opportunity set that you're seeing today? So we see a lot in terms of different, you know, what are the companies that are coming to market are, and are being sold? And um, there are different types of opportunities. We're finding a lot of founder-owned businesses coming back to market because a lot of them are tired. They went through two years of COVID and now they are looking for um an opportunity to exit. So we're finding a lot of businesses like that. Okay. Um, we're also finding businesses that um, in the tech and the healthcare space as well, which is which has proven to be strong during the COVID environment. And overall, though, we're finding that some of the businesses that are not as well run, who've experienced a lot of challenges, waiting to come back to sell um, 
in the market today. So it's been a, a mix in terms of the types of deals that, mm-hmm. that we're seeing. In terms of the managers that we want to back, though, we're really looking, and we've always had a thesis around specialization mm. and picking managers who know their sectors very well. So right. they know their industry well, so they know how to evaluate companies and um, and frankly, be able to create value. Most people, in the good old days in private equity, people used to think about not only the leverage, but the value creation and rolling mm-hmm. up their sleeves. So as we invest in private equity, we still have that thematic approach where Yes, so you are going to use some financial leverage to mm-hmm. support a transaction. But more importantly, we're looking for value creation from our managers who have been investing in those sectors and in those industries for a really long time and who can help those businesses grow um, and really weather the storm based on you know what we're seeing, what's going on from the macro, as, as you had articulated. Yeah, so, so that makes sense. So, so you want to see specialization. So that, that makes a lot of sense. You, you have already touched on alignment a little bit, but it seems like that's, that's something that is extremely important at this point in the cycle, probably at any point in the cycle. Um, does that all naturally lead you to look more at segments of the market like emerging managers? Absolutely. Um, so most smaller emerging managers are, are typically teams who've been investing in one segment of the market, one one industry, and are raising you know first, second, third time funds who are doubling down on their experience from 20, 30 years in right. investing in a specific segment. So it's not, um, it's not, it's not brand new managers, right? No, there. it's not, yeah. an, not, not someone who just graduated from business school <laughs> who decided to raise a fund. Right. We're, we're really backing experienced individuals who've invested through multiple cycles. Mm-hmm. But I think the other thing that is, is really important that most people don't think about is their time and attention, right? They, they don't have a huge legacy portfolio if they were investing out of a platform fund seven where they had a lot of portfolio companies that they had to worry about. Mm. Um, So a lot of these emerging managers have appropriate sized teams. They're focused on a certain sector, but also they don't have, you know, 30 portfolio companies to worry about. So they have the ability to spend the time and the attention to grow these businesses and also help them, again, weather the storm if we're seeing some challenges and in potential recessionary environment. So is that is that an advantage then if you think about, you know, let's say we are heading into a potential recession. I mean, who, who knows? But um, let's say we are headed there based on what you've seen historically, because you've been looking at this space and investing in this space for 20 plus years. Is that an advantage for an emerging manager, someone who's spun out of a, a larger fund, for instance, that they don't necessarily have to, you know, oversee or navigate, you know, thirty portfolio companies through a downturn? Is that is that an Absolute, advantage? Absolutely, it's an advantage. And frankly, we saw that during COVID. So we have that experience during COVID. We absolutely saw d- during COVID the managers that we've invested in who are larger have a large legacy portfolio had their hair on fire. They were um, dealing with problems across all their portfolio companies, like everyone else did in terms of labor issues, supply chain issues. And on the flip side, our emerging managers, yes, they were definitely taking um, taking care of their same assets and maybe they had the same challenges, uh, but they also had the time and attention to pursue and take advantage of opportunities in the market and actively invest. So we always look at the dollars and um being managed in the number of partners um, and um, dollars to partners, portfolio companies. And that that ratio has been, it's always more favorable for emerging managers where they have experienced individuals, well-resourced teams to really handle a smaller portfolio. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. 
Now, you mentioned alignment a couple of times. Uh, how do you think about alignment specifically as it relates to emerging managers? Yeah, this is this is what I love about this business. This is a business where alignment tells you a lot. Mm. It tells you a, a lot about that conviction level. So with most of these emerging managers or first, second, third time funds, they're leaving a steady paycheck, carry on the table. Uh, they're investing in their new platform. They're putting money where their mm. mouth is. And that 2% um, means a lot. It's a lot more meaningful when they don't have this strong fee income like they, you, know, you see typically in these larger established funds. And so having that alignment for me is even more and more critical. And we see that with these smaller managers. And again, we're not making any concessions in terms of, of the types of quality of the managers. We are backing individuals with that experience track record. And on top of that, we're, they're putting their money where they're at, their mouth is and investing right alongside with us. And in fact, most of our emerging managers actually have a higher than a 2% GP commitment. So hmm. we're seeing more and more alignment from our smaller managers than we do see from some of the larger managers. Yeah, I can see where that alignment would would be critical, uh, I guess, across all points of the cycle. But you can imagine, like, especially going into a downturn, you really want to see that. And your point around, I think, you know, being real specialists in their industries makes a lot of sense too. Um, I'm curious, so we, uh, besides alignment and kind of sector specialism, um, you know, you've been doing this for 20 plus years. As you evaluate these managers, you, you see a lot of managers every year. Um, what are some of the common traits that you look for? And like, what do you think uh, ends up being real differentiators for the managers that end up doing really well? It always comes down to the team, the experience of the team, uh, the continuity working as a team. Mm -hmm. There's, um, you know, these these are relationships that are. I always say they're they're more than marriages, right? You're 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 locked in for ten to fifteen years. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that the partnership across the partners and even with their junior partners or staff is really tight. Mm. Um, so the team is important. Um, how do you the, how do you evaluate that out of interest? Yeah. Well. Well. Well, one is we have to make sure that they've worked together. We don't really invest in teams who've never had that working experience. So I think it's it's pretty clear whether they've worked together or not. Also, we um, we do back teams in what we call pre-fund structures or when they are independent sponsors. So we have an opportunity to evaluate how they do deals, how they source deals, and observe the working relationship across the team to make sure that they just don't present very well when they're in your offices, but when they're actually doing a deal, when they're sourcing, when they're creating value, we can observe that firsthand. So we have a window into, into the manager and how they operate. So we spend a lot of time on that. Um, and, and frankly, most of these teams, we've known them in their prior lives. So we've been tracking this talent for many, many years. Mm. We backed a manager where I first backed them 15 years ago in their prior platform. So there's a lot of history across our team and, and our experience yeah, being yeah. as limited partners in the space and knowing the market and knowing who these players are. So, so team is really, really important. Uh, two is being able to demonstrate success and in investing through multiple cycles, not just one cycle, having invested during, um, you know, post-GFC where everything was rosy. We want to see investors who've seen, you know, diff more difficult days and know how to manage more challenging environments as well. So it's team that experience um, investing, the track record. Mm -hmm. And then the the strategy we we want the strategy to be right in line with their fund, um, um, with their previous experience. We don't want them to be now investing in a different segment. We want them to all be 
um, a, a lot of consistency with experience, their success, and what they were, what they're setting forth to do. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, uh, one quick follow up question for you there. You mentioned that you're, you know, often tracking for these you know, talented individuals over long periods of time. Do you actually have like a database where you're tracking that? Or what does that look like? Or is that proprietary? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it, it is. We do track, um, we do even track when we get information on um, who sourced what deals and who created value okay. on those deals. And that's part of the information. But we also have a pretty extensive LP network as mm -hmm. well. And our peers, we talk to our peers all the time. Um, and we may have not invested in their predecessor fund, but then we can call our peers in the market and say, hey, do you know yeah. you know this individual? What did they do? What did you see? And what did you observe? Um, I always, I, what I love about our industry that it's, it's, this is private equity, right? This is where you, um, the best performers have an informational advantage and where we have a team who's been doing this for a long time, we do have an informational advantage versus people who are just starting to invest in this segment of the market for the first time. So we're, we're really excited about it. And we think that um, in the next couple of years, we're going to see even more managers coming to market um, and we're going to see just more and more talent um, starting new funds. Yeah, yeah that's great. Um, well, I know you and the team have a lot of expertise, uh, specifically investing with women and diverse managers. So tell me a little bit about how you think about that whole element of, of the investment strategy. Well, we're about investing in opportunities that are overlooked. And uh, women and diverse talent is, has been historically overlooked. We do not follow the, the, we're not following the herd, right? We are identifying opportunities and it means that we're backing, if I go back to what we, we back, we back teams, individuals with the experience and the track record. There are those individuals who are women, people of color like myself, who've been doing this for a long time. But we have that network to be able to tap into those opportunities, anchor those managers and provide them that first kind of capital so that they can start their own platforms. So it's a tremendous opportunity from the manager side, but we're also backing women and diverse talent at, you know, companies as well. We're at the C-level. Um, we're finding there's some of that talent where they don't have access to capital in the way that you see um, in more traditional firms. So those are other opportunities, not only in the managers that we back, but also in the types of companies that we're backing as well. Mm, that's awesome. And I, I think you kind of are walking the talk as well because your right. team is is yeah. probably one of the most diverse teams I've seen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, and and look, it's it's a function again. There's a lot of group think in this business and a lot of homogeneous thinking. Mm. And so I've been extremely intentional about building a team where we have all types of talent, different backgrounds from a you know gender race, but also um, where they came from um, because we need different lenses to evaluate opportunities. Even if you think about our process, our committee and so forth, it's not just what I think, but what does our whole team think? And that, that sort of... Um you know, listening to all the voices around the table, I feel like is a very consistent approach for your team, but also for our firm kind of uh, at large. Um, you know, one question I had for you just in terms of what you're hearing from our clients. So when they come to you, are, are, are clients coming to you and, and asking you specifically for to help manage or, or start a mandate uh, around women and diverse managers? Or is it usually part of a, a broader, you know, allocation to private equity? This is one factor we want you to think about. 
So we we work with clients in a customized way, depending on what their needs are. Sometimes we have clients who are starting out their programs in both private equity and real assets for the first time, and they just need some of the foundational um, work around building those portfolios. Sometimes we get clients who come to us and say they want one segment of the market, which is the lower end of the market or smaller managers. And then DNI and diverse managers is also an area where we can create a specialized uh, program to hit on that. Regardless of the of what their needs are, um, we always invest with um, the approach of a best ideas portfolio and we don't make any um, concessions on our on how we build the portfolios. We're always trying to um, generate outsized returns for for our investors, and um, and we do that both from a primary funds perspective. So about a third of what uh, we've invested in is a, is primary funds, so investing in in funds. But actually, two thirds of what we do is actually direct investments, um, and it can come in different um, methods. It can be a traditional co investment. Oftentimes, we're working with independent sponsors. Many times, we're up, um, working directly with operating teams who have success and they want and they've identified an asset and they want uh, they need capital to invest in a new platform. And um, and we've done a lot also around continuation vehicles as well, where we're seeing a lot of that. And then the um, you know secondaries. We've also been pretty active on the secondary front. So we do invest in the whole gamut. I always describe it as not the 1.0 way of just funds and co-investments and secondaries, but we've we're investing in a 2.0 way where we're actually identifying um, value through different types of structures. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's that seems like really flexible. Um, in terms of in terms of that universe that you just described, I mean. Are there areas of that where you're seeing more opportunity or less opportunity today? So I'm curious, like, do do investments in managers look more attractive than direct investments, or vice versa, right now? Or do you look at, even look at it that way? We, yeah, we. I mean, we look at the best of the best out of all of those kind of categories. We're finding a lot of interest in um, in opportunities in what we call the continuation vehicle side, and then also what we're describing as GP solutions, where we're finding we could um, loan um, capital at the fund level as well to create some liquidity for managers. Um, so it's it's across the board. I mean, this last year, we did a number of continuation vehicles. And the reason we really liked it is because we were investing with managers we knew in assets we had been tracking for a long time, uh, where there is an opportunity to double down and put more capital to work. And... Um, and the alignment was actually even stronger in those instances and way higher than the 2% that you would mm-hmm. see in their mm-hmm. funds. So so for our listeners who might not be as familiar with continuation vehicles, can you yeah. just describe what that is and like what would be a scenario where right. you might want to um, have one of those structures? So, so think about um, a, in a continuation vehicle being a manager may have an, has a portfolio of assets and they in one of their portfolio companies have generated returns. So they've um, demonstrated their ability to grow the business, improve margins, and typically they've written it up um, and it's getting positioned to do a potential sale. So in those instances, the manager um, is making the decision to completely exit that investment or to continue to own that asset um, and structure it in what they call a continuation vehicle and structure it in what we call a, a single asset, so an SPV. And so in those instances, the manager is giving the limited partners of their fund an opportunity to exit 
or roll into this new vehicle. And so for for us, we're really buying into their trophy assets. So assets, again, where they've demonstrated their success, the relationship that the management team has with the sponsor is working. So it's it's all working. It's a great asset. It's performing well. And, um, and to my point earlier, if they crystallize carry with this transaction, they're really um, rolling over all their carry into this new vehicle. So that's what a continuation vehicle is. Where we come in is we price the asset. We um, our investors right alongside with the GP, and and we're really picking and investing in some of the best assets that GPs invested in, you know, across their careers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And c- correct me if I'm wrong, but can it work the other way as well? So if there's an underperforming asset that they would like to, that they think you know over time could become a high performing asset. Is that another type of scenario that you yeah, see? Yeah, we've. I mean, it's it's less. Um, that's less. We see less of that. But in, and usually in that case, they have a plan with an asset, and perhaps they may be at the end of their fund investment period where they don't have the ability uh, to I put see. more money okay. in, and yep. and so you can see some of those. But uh, the market's really been more oriented to some of the best performing okay. assets. I see. So from the perspective that you're looking at it from, it's really an opportunity to like keep holding on to some of these really great. It's picking, yeah, holding on to their winners and, yep. and they don't want to sell their winners to their competitor funds. And so we kind of see it as like a, a triple win, right? It's good for the manager. They're holding on to some of their best assets. It's great for their um, their limited partners. It provides some liquidity and it's great for the new investors like ourselves coming in who can continue to ride the success mm-hmm. that has um, that the manager and that company has already demonstrated. Okay. And then you and the team, of course, I'm sure, are doing all the due diligence to make sure that alignment structures are correct. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, because we want to make sure that they're just aligned um, with that investment as anything else in their portfolio. The reality is, is that the alignment's usually stronger in these continuation vehicles than what we've seen in your traditional primary funds, which is why we've been so bullish on, on them. You know, I'll, I'll start with the fact that you know, not all CVs are created equal, but those are the, what we're describing here is the dynamics and the type, the profile of the types of deals that yep. we've invested in. That's great. Uh, okay. Challenges, Mina. So yeah. let's talk about some of the, the big challenges that, that um, LPs face. I mean, you know, you mentioned that they're inundated with re-up. I'm kind of interested to hear about that, but I know they face other challenges, right? So they may not have a as large of a view on 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 the market dynamics as as you do, um, and, and many other things. But what are some of those biggest challenges you think uh, LPs are kind of facing looking at this market today? Well, one is there's a big question mark on valuations. Where is their portfolio um, going to be, especially when they're trying to, you know, invest with a certain range with a target allocation? So I think that's at a very macro level. That is that is top of mind as you talk to any limited partner. Where is their portfolio? Are they at ten percent? Are they at twelve percent? Are they at eight percent? So I, that's I think one challenge that we're seeing across the board. Two is the reups, uh, but but a lot of them have already committed um, their twenty twenty two allocation here. Um, even within three months of the year or four months of this year, they've already done that. So they're they're trying to manage what do they do with those. Um, newer opportunities that are coming through. So that's that's the second challenge mm-hmm. that we're mm-hmm. seeing. Um, the third challenge that we're seeing is there um, with, with any kind of co-investments that come through or even some of these CVs that these continuation vehicles that we reference, they, they are really challenged to determine whether they should 
when they have the option to exit, should they, you know, exit and get a have a liquidity event for them and for um, for their plan, or to roll? And that's a really hard position for them because they don't have the resources to truly evaluate the asset like something like we would do, um, and they don't know whether um, they should. Um, you know, if they have the capacity to really understand and hold on to an asset a little bit longer or double down on that. So, so I think overall, the, the continuation vehicle is putting a lot of strains for those limited partners on what to do with that one specific asset. And that, that, so I imagine that's something that you and your team can help alleviate that pain. That, that pain point yeah. for them. I mean, and it, it's to me, I see this as being where we were with co investments 15 years ago, where a lot of clients, a, lo- a lot of limited partners, just didn't know how to evaluate co-investment. So I see CVs being as another opportunity and where uh, where LPs are going to need more assistance and helping them evaluate it. And also they're they're utilizing a partner like us here at Bearings to make that decision and help them make that decision versus them doing it on their own in a mm-hmm. vacuum mm-hmm. with with limited information. Yeah. And how about looking at the emerging manager universe specifically? Is that tricky for LPs to kind of wrap their arms around? I imagine, yeah. I imagine there's a lot that goes yeah. into trying to evaluate first-time managers. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. It's, it's so hard, right? The market... At, so it's it's hard on multiple levels. I, number one is making sure you have a comprehensive view of the market, not just investing in what shows up at your door. So that's absolutely case. So when we talk about LPs being stretched and so forth, just with their normal core, if they have the time and the attention to evaluate and, and really source the best of the best opportunities um, on the emerging manager side or newer funds, uh, but also the ability to benchmark versus... Um, other emerging managers that are spinning out, how do they know that they're picking the best of the best is something that where we can be helpful because that's what we do all day. And um, we're, we're looking at all the spin outs. We're looking at all those newer opportunities. And we've been tracking a lot of this talent for a long time. So that's where we can help play a role. And after 20 years of doing this in the emerging manager space, I think now LPs are really understanding that you're not taking outsized risk by backing these first, second, third time funds. I think now the market is finally accepting that these are quality managers that you can hold even directly um, as part of your core portfolio and not just having it in the separate vehicle with, you know, focus on emerging um, or smaller managers. Yeah, interesting. I I would imagine it's a much different skill set evaluating a fund seven versus a fund one. It is. It's a lot of work in terms of making sure you're tracking those those individuals, but the experience. We spend a lot of time doing, you know, due diligence on the companies that they've invested in before, references, you know, on and off the list, not just the golf buddies who show up on their on their on their reference list. But we're we're doing that because we're evaluating these individuals um, for their ability to continue to execute and have the success that they have on paper. I, I always joke that everybody shows up with um, their pitch book with an upper quartile track record, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to be able to parse through if it's truly they those individuals who are there in front of you fundraising are the ones who really generated the returns uh, that they have I on see. their track record. I see. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um well, we are coming toward the end of our conversation, Mina. This has been very illuminating for me. I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to ask you two questions in one to finish up here. So, okay. <laughs> well, you talked about uh, the kind of growing emergence of continuation vehicles. Uh, I guess I'm curious um, if there's any other trends out there that you're seeing or anything else that you're keeping an eye on 
And then also just kind of any other broad, you know, parting words for investors who are kind of looking at this space, maybe already have an allocation to this space, um, kind of curious, you know, what your kind of parting words to them might be. Alignment is probably the most, um, the key word in this business. And so my parting words was to really focus on the alignment of any of your manager, whether small, emerging, uh, diverse, but also large or established. This is a challenging market and you want your manager to be right there alongside and them putting their money where their mouth is as well. So that I would say that's a one critical. Um, it's oh, alignment's always critical in the in the private markets, but even more so when you're investing in a very challenging environment. Um, and, and two is making sure that the teams that you're investing in are really the teams who demonstrated that success in whatever track record. Uh, just because you are on Fund Seven or Fund Eight, is the team who's investing really the team who had the returns or drew, drove the returns in those earlier vintage funds? So that's absolutely important. And third is um, the you know from the continuation side as well and the CV side, spend the time to really understand it because we find that a lot of LPs are leaving some money on the table by not participating in those. Um, and and find a way to be um, spend time on evaluating them. In some instances, it makes sense for you to take the opportunity to generate some liquidity, but in some other instances, it may be better for you to hold on to those assets. So this is going to be a tricky, it's tricky part of the market um, as people are starting to understand it more. But find a way to be better resourced to make the best decisions. Um, for for your plans. Yeah, I think those are some great words yeah. of guidance yeah. from someone who knows this market very well. So Thank you. Um, well, thank you, Mina. This has been great. I always learn a few things I definitely didn't know before every time yeah. I speak with you. So I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you. Thanks for the time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to episode number 10 of season six of Streaming Income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate alternatives and emerging markets, make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.